Amen. Well, we'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're teaching a series on uh, spiritual dominion. And uh, we're using Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 as a beginning point for that series. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. One of the great spiritual truths, undeniable spiritual truths, is that God created man after his own likeness in his own image. Or we could say it this way, that might be a a clarification and an explanation on God creating mankind after his own kind. He created Adam after his own kind. And the Bible says without dispute that there was one and only one reason that he created man in his own image. And that was for man to have dominion. God created man to have dominion on the earth. Well, we know Adam maintained that dominion for a period of time, but then he lost it to Satan. When uh, he disobeyed God and ate of the forbidden tree, Satan becomes the God of this world. And God has to create a, a means whereby he can overcome the curse of spiritual death that came upon all mankind because of Adam's sin. So he creates a covenant with Abraham. And this covenant is based on obedience. This covenant includes uh, blessings of every type. It included children as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore, as God said. And then that, uh, that covenant was ratified or codified in the law of Moses. It gave mankind a means to escape the curse of, the dis- of Adam's disobedience, which came to be known as the curse of the law. It's really the curse of the results of spiritual death ruling and dominating mankind. After about uh, 40-something years of walking with God, Abraham comes to the place where he trusts in God and trusts in his relationship with God to such a degree that he's willing to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. God put him to the test. The test was not to see whether or not he would kill his son. The test was, how much does this covenant mean to you, Abraham? See, the covenant on God's side meant everything. It was his means, his way of blessing mankind. It was a means of providing man a part of, at least, the blessings that he created him to have on the earth. But what did it mean from Abraham's standpoint, from Abraham's point of view? Well, Abraham comes to the place where he believes in God to such a degree that he believes that God can raise uh, his son Isaac from the dead if that's what's necessary. And so he ratifies the covenant from man's side, from mankind's perspective. He ratifies the covenant to such a degree that God says, because you haven't withheld your only son, now I won't withhold mine. And he makes some promises to him. We'll talk about that uh, one specific promise that he makes to him a little bit as we go along. We're, um, we're trying to summarize some things that we've said and covered up to this point. Then, uh, then we'll go a little bit further and, and add to what we've already learned and seen from the Scripture. Several thousand years later, Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus amazes everybody by the signs and wonders and miracles that he does. You remember in John chapter 3, it says that Nicodemus came to him by night and said, Master, we know that you're come from God because a guy can't do what you do unless God's with him. And Jesus talks to him about being born again. You must be born again. Now, some have thought that Jesus just ignores his, his question or his point about the miracles and so forth, but I don't believe that to be the case. Jesus is telling him that his ability to do those miracles is a result of his relationship with the Father. The fact that he is alive under the Father, just like Adam was before the fall. He's got the same spirit, the same nature. He's after God's image and in his likeness, just like Adam was in the Garden of Eden before the fall. So he talks to Nicodemus about being born again. Jesus does healing miracles. He does signs and wonders and so forth. One man in in, uh, Matthew chapter 8 has an understanding that, uh, that apparently not anybody else, or very few, if any, have about Jesus' source of power and the reason that he's able to do the miracles that he did. He sends word to Jesus about his son. He's a centurion. 
That means he's the captain in the Roman army. He sends word to Jesus about his son being sick. And Jesus agrees because this man has been good to the Jews. He contributed greatly to the synagogue being built in Capernaum. And so Jesus agrees that he will come to his house and heal his servant. And the centurion says there's no need to do that. You don't have to come to my house. Just speak the word only and my servant will be healed. He answers and explains why he understands that. He says, for I am a man under authority. In other words, he's saying, I understand that authority works and how it works. Now, unless he understood that Jesus was operating with authority, that would be an irrelevant point. But he said, when I tell my, my servants, those that are working for me and those that are under my charge in the army, he said, when I tell them to do something, they do it. I don't have to check up on them. They're under my authority, and so they obey what I tell them to do. You have the same authority where sickness and disease is concerned, so speak the word only and my servant will be healed. Jesus marvels at this. He marvels at the man's understanding that he's working miracles, doing healing wonders and signs and miracles and so forth based on authority, based on the authority that he has. Now, Jesus said himself that the authority that he was operating under was not because he was the son of God. The Bible clearly says that he laid aside his heavenly power and glory. It's easy to think, and it seems to me most of the church world does think, that Jesus operated and and, uh, performed signs and wonders and miracles here on the earth because he was the son of God. But Jesus said specifically that that was not it. He called himself the son of man. And not only that, but the Bible tells us in Matthew 7 that Jesus taught others how to have and how to hold and how to use authority. And they marveled at his teaching. They didn't marvel at him only because he was a miracle worker. They marveled because he taught that man had authority on the earth. In other words, Jesus was trying to make the point and trying to teach others that God's means of obedience to the law of Moses or to the law of Moses was an opportunity for mankind to regain at least a part of the dominion that he had before he fell in the Garden of Eden, before Adam sinned. And the people were astonished at his doctrine. Well, the centurion understood that that's why Jesus operated the way he did. Now, we don't know if the centurion had heard Jesus' teaching before, if he knew what he knew about him other than the fact that he was operating with authority over sickness and disease. But the point I want you to see is authority played a huge, huge, huge role in Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus was operating under the authority that he was given by being born of a woman. The virgin birth enabled him to have the authority that God intended for man to have from the beginning, from Genesis 1.26, that God intended for man to have in the beginning. See, God hadn't changed. He never changes. If he intended man to have authority on the earth in the beginning, he still does. He did in Jesus' day. He does in our day. So Jesus, being born of a woman, gave him the opportunity to exercise the authority that God provided for mankind and in the Garden of Eden that he lost to Satan, he meaning Adam, lost to Satan, and that man regained through, the, the, through God giving the law of Moses so that when man keeps and obeys the law of Moses, he's able to, to regain a, at least a portion of the authority that he once had. Jesus is operating on the earth through the authority that God gave man, not that he had as the pre-incarnate part of the Godhead. Now, turn with me over to, uh, let's start in, well, what do we want to start? Let's start in uh, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is talking to his disciples. We'll start reading in verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Notice again he's referring to himself as the Son of Man. Every time he talks about himself being the Son of Man, he's referencing his authority, his legal right to operate here on the earth as a righteous man 
as a man who was given dominion by God in the beginning, in the creation account, because of God's anointing upon him. So he said, who do people say that I, the son of man, am? He doesn't call himself the son of God. He calls himself the son of man. That's his position of authority. He laid aside his son of God authority when he came to the earth. He's operating as the son of man authority or in the son of man authority. So he says, who do people say that I am? And they said, some say that you're John the Baptist. He's dead and that would be reincarnation. Some say Elijah, same thing. Elijah's been dead for a long time. And others say Jeremiah, he's been dead too, or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, but whom say you that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. He's talking about divine revelation. Now notice what he's saying. He's saying, You don't know this because I've done miracles and healings and signs and wonders. You've seen the miracles. You've participated in a lot of the miracles. Certainly the miracles have had an impact on him. But it's not the miracles that proved that he was the Christ. He said, the Father has revealed this unto you. Well, that probably made Peter feel pretty good. He's hearing from God himself. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock... I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice that phrase, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now I want to read this uh, verse of scripture to you from another translation. And uh, this is verse 19. Let me read from the Amplified. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you bind, in parentheses, declare to be improper and unlawful on earth, must be what is already bound in heaven. And whatsoever you loose, in parentheses, declare lawful on earth, must be what is already loosed in heaven. Now, I think this is a good translation because... I think a lot of times people get the idea that this this binding and loosing thing means whatever you want and however it works. But it really is identified as what God's already taken care of and established in heaven. You have a right to establish here in the earth on your own behalf. The point that I want you to see first and foremost, folks, is that when Jesus talks about building the church, the first thing he talks about is authority. He said, blessed art thou, Simon, because flesh and blood is not revealed to you that I'm the Christ, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto you, upon this rock, this, the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Upon this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, what do the gates of hell represent? The gates of hell represents the power of the devil. The gates of hell shall represent the power of the devil. And then he says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Not keys to the kingdom, keys of the kingdom. Now those keys, and the implication is that the keys of the kingdom unlock every door relative to and related to the kingdom of God. He said those keys will enable you to do two things. Allow what God has allowed in heaven and forbid what God has forbidden in heaven. Now, what does that mean? I've heard a lot of teaching, perhaps you have too, and some of it sounds pretty goofy when it comes to binding and loosing. But what is it really talking about? Jesus was not weird. Jesus was not flaky. So when he says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever, whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven... Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Notice he says it starts here on the earth. Whether you bind or you loose. It starts here on the earth. Now, let me remind you of something. 
over in Matthew chapter 6. It doesn't matter if you turn there. You'll know these scriptures. This is where the disciples come to Jesus and he gives them what's, what's known in church circles as the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, after this manner, therefore, pray you. This is Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. After this manner, therefore, pray you. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Verse 10. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Now, what kingdom would Jesus be talking about? Well, it'd have to be the kingdom of God because he's talking to God saying, thy kingdom. You think this is the same kingdom of God that he's referring to over in Matthew 16? Where he says, and I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of, of God. And whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It has to be the same thing. So he says, pray like this. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now you know the rest of the prayer. And, and there's no need for us to go further and and read it because the, the part that we've, we've already seen the part that relates to our subject matter tonight. He's saying, telling the disciples to pray that the kingdom of God would come. To pray that the kingdom of God would come so that the will of God would be done on the earth just like it is in heaven. Well, what are things like in heaven? Is there any sickness? Is there any disease? Is there any lack in any way whatsoever? Is there any sin? Is there any devil? Is there any adversary in any form whatsoever? No, things are in heaven as God intended them to be on earth before the fall of man. So when Jesus says, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, he's saying that we have the authority to bind things on earth that are contrary to the will of God has shown us in heaven. And we have also the opportunity to lose things here on the earth that are in line with what God has already made free and made available in heaven. He's saying that the authority the church has should and will bring about the will of God in your life in the presence of your enemy. Now, the kingdom, is, uh, is something, the kingdom of God is something that was talked about a lot in Jesus' earthly ministry. The disciples were always coming to Jesus or oftentimes coming to Jesus and saying, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? The Pharisees did the same thing. There was a time in Luke chapter 17, I believe it is, that, uh, that the Pharisees, yeah, Luke 17 verse 20, it says, and when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, See, when Jesus was here on the earth, the kingdom of God had not yet come. So they demanded of him when the kingdom of God should come. And he answered them and said, the kingdom of God comes not with observation. It comes not with observation. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about the kingdom of God not being something that you can see with the outward or physical eye. Neither shall they say low here or low there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within you. Now, back to Matthew 16, there's a, an interesting part of this uh, that Jesus declares to his disciples. After he tells them in verse 19, I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Notice Jesus is saying in connection with the building of the church. That didn't take place until after he was raised from the dead. Until after his resurrection. He's saying there will come a point in time. That I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That didn't happen while he was here on the earth. In his earthly ministry I mean. Now later on Jesus begins talking to them. Beginning in verse 21 of Matthew 16. He talks about his death and resurrection. He talks about taking up his cross. and Their cross and following Jesus. But notice verse 28. Matthew 16 verse 28. This is all the same point in time. This is all the same um, experience or event with Jesus talking to his disciples. And notice he says in verse 28, he says, Verily I say unto you, truly, this is what I'm saying to you. There will be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Do you see that? 
Now, a lot of times people talk, uh, assume that that's talking about Jesus coming back to the earth and for the church. But how in the world could that be when all these guys are already dead? Jesus ha- certainly hasn't come back for the church yet. He hadn't raptured the church. So Jesus coming in his kingdom can't mean the rapture. It can't mean what we have when we get to heaven. So what is the kingdom of God that he's talking about? Well, the Bible tells us, and we looked at this some last week, some the week before too, I believe. It talks about in Acts chapter 13 that when Jesus was raised from the dead, God said something to his son. He said, Thou art my beloved son. This day have I begotten thee. We talked about how Jesus, the Bible tells us, was the first begotten or firstborn from the dead. Well, when was he first born from the dead? We talk about, or many people talk about the first, Jesus being the only begotten son. And we look it back to the new birth, or, uh, the virgin birth, excuse me, in Bethlehem. And that's the only time that we consider Jesus being born. But the Bible says that when in Acts chapter 13, when Paul is preaching to the Uh, well the congregation the audience that he has Paul is preaching and tells them that when Jesus was raised from the dead God said this day have I begotten thee what birth was Jesus experiencing it couldn't have been a physical birth Jesus was not the first begotten or first born from physical death Lazarus was raised from the dead before Jesus was Others in the Old Testament were as well. So it can't be physical death that Jesus was the first begotten of the dead. So what death was he first born from? Spiritual death. That means Jesus had to die spiritually in order to be born again. But the Bible says that Jesus was the first begotten or first born from spiritual death. In the same manner it says that Jesus tasted death in the same passage of scripture in Acts, in Acts chapter 13 and then again over in Hebrews chapter 2 it says that Jesus tasted death for every man now if that's just talking about the physical death Jesus died on the cross if that is what it means that Jesus tasted death for every man it's talking about what Jesus did as our substitute so if he tasted physical death for you that means you don't have to die physically well we know that's not right that doesn't line up with what the other scriptures in the Bible says. So what does that mean? That means Jesus tasted spiritual death for every man. Jesus died for the sins of the world. That's why the good news is anybody and everybody can be saved. Now they won't be, but it's not God's fault. It's by choice. So when Jesus was born again or raised from the dead, think about what that means. That means that Jesus was the first individual to make up the church the bible says jesus is the head of the church he's the head and we're the body which means he's part of the church right so jesus was the first church member the first one born into the family of god and that's what god declares over him thou art my beloved son this day have i begotten thee this day are you born again from spiritual death Now think about where that happened. That happened in the gates of hell. Jesus was born again in the midst of hell. Now, I don't know exactly how this works. And I don't think anybody else does. I guess we'll know when we get to heaven. But the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 16... The story of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus tells us about two men who lived here on the earth and died. And it tells us that there was opportunity, one being in the the, uh, Abraham's bosom or paradise. That was Lazarus. And then the rich man was in hell being in torment. And it says he lifted up his eyes and saw Lazarus afar off in Abraham's bosom. There's an opportunity apparently in the spirit realm to see other things that are going on in the spirit. Now, to what degree that is, I don't know. But I do know this. I know that the Bible says that when Jesus gained victory over spiritual death, Colossians 2.15 says that he spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them openly. What that means very specifically according to the language 
is that all of the spirit world saw what Jesus conquered when Jesus conquered the devil. Everybody in the spirit realm saw Jesus defeat the devil. Now, when did he defeat the devil? Or more specifically, at what moment did he defeat the devil? When he was born again. So everybody in the spirit realm saw Jesus being born again. That must mean, therefore, that everybody in the spirit realm saw the suffering that Jesus was enduring. When the Bible says Jesus died as our substitute, we looked at the sacrifice of the Old Testament. And how that the Old Testament day of atonement type was fulfilled. A complete sacrifice was two different parts. The first was the the lamb that was offered as a sin offering. Where the blood of Jesus would fulfill the type. The holy sacrifice. To open the way for us into the presence of God. But the other part of the sacrifice was the scapegoat. Where the sins of all of mankind. The Old Testament type was the sins of Israel. Jesus fulfilling that type would be the sins of mankind laid upon him, pronounced upon him, and in the place of the departed, the land of the uninhabited, as it says, which must be the pit of hell. It says that that's where the judgment of God came upon Jesus wave after wave after wave after wave after wave. Well, everybody in the spirit realm must have been able to see that. They must have witnessed that. Now, the reason we know that is in Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. Now, this is one scripture I want you to see. Look with me to Romans 4.25. There's a, uh, a poor translation with one little word that changes the meaning somewhat. You may think it's a minor issue, but it has great significance. We'll start in verse 24. It says, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed. Talking about righteousness. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. So we see what the context of the scripture is. It's talking about Jesus being raised from the dead. Now notice verse 25. Who was delivered, talking about Jesus, was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Now this has got to be talking about the scapegoat. Because he was delivered for our offenses. The scapegoat was the one upon whom the offenses or the sins were laid upon. And then he was taken out into the wilderness. A land cut off from the living. And that's where the judgment of God came upon the scapegoat. Well, the land cut off from the living had to be the place of the spiritually dead for Jesus. And that's where the wave after wave of God's punishment came upon him. But now notice again verse 24 or 25, excuse me. It's talking about Jesus who was delivered for our justifications and was raised again. Notice it's talking about when he was raised again. When God said, this day have I begotten thee. And was raised again, notice the next word, for our justification. Now the word for is poorly translated because the word for would indicate a cause of. And many people read this, most people, I guess, read this because of the way it's translated. Jesus was raised again so that we could be justified. But that's not what the, verse, that's not what the language is saying. See, the word for is a word that denotes time, not cause. So it says Jesus was delivered for our offenses and was raised again literally when we were justified. When we were justified. Now, there are other ways you could translate it, but if you're not translating this prefix, this uh, adjective or whatever it would be, I'm not an English major, but if you translate the word for, it has to be translated according to time. So for me, it makes most, the most sense of anything I can come up with to translate it. He was raised again when we were justified. What that means is simply this. When Jesus had completed The price that was necessary for your justification. Then at that moment. The life of God came back into and upon Jesus. A voice from heaven thundered and said thou art my beloved son. This day have I begotten thee. And all of the spirit realm. Saw. That Satan was defeated. Because Jesus stripped him of his. 
the keys of hell and death, according to Revelation chapter 1, took away from Satan every bit of power that he had gained, every bit of authority that he had gained from Adam, and immediately goes into Abraham's bosom and preaches to those saints. The Bible talks about it in leading captivity captive. In other words, the first people that got born again were the people. Jesus was the first member of the church. The next members of the church were the Old Testament saints that are waiting for the Messiah, the promise of the Messiah, to be fulfilled. Then Jesus stops on the way to heaven to pick up his body, sees Mary, says, don't touch me, I haven't yet appeared to my father, goes to heaven, presents himself as the sacrifice, the living sacrifice before the father, along with the other members, the first members of God's family, new family now. And then God confers upon Jesus a name that's above every other name. He seats him at his right hand. And everything about heaven changes. Everything changes. Because now Jesus is the preeminent one. The one who left and went to earth, lowered himself to be born of a woman and to operate below the angels here on the earth, now has been elevated and exalted and given a name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, both in heaven and in earth. Now the angels are subject not only to Jesus, but also to all those that believe on Jesus and receive of his authority. Immediately, Jesus heads back to the earth appears to his disciples, says, it's me, you can touch me now, and talks to them about authority. He says, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore into the earth. Now, what is he doing? He's fulfilling what he said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 28. He said, verily I say unto you, there are some of you standing here that shall not see death or taste of death before you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. As far as I can tell, everybody in that group would fulfill that promise with the exception of Judas, who hanged himself before the resurrection. My point is very simply this. When Jesus comes back to the earth, he comes back in the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is all about authority, which is exactly what he said that he would use or was the necessary ingredient to build the church. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is one critical element to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's authority to bind and loose. Now, turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. And we'll start reading in verse 1. These are, this is uh, Moses speaking to the children of Israel. This is his, almost the whole chapter, the whole um, book of Deuteronomy is his farewell address these are the last words of Moses before he goes off the scene and Joshua takes over as the leader of, of, the, of Israel notice he says beginning in verse 28 chapter 28 verse 1 and it shall come to pass if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all of his commandments which I command thee this day that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee. That means catch you from behind. If thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Notice we're not chasing the blessings. We're pursuing obedience to God. The blessings catch us. Blessed shalt thou be in the city and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. Now, folks, I want you to understand, this is the blessing of the Old Testament obedience to God's word. This is a part of the covenant that God gave to Abraham. This is not part of the covenant that we have now. The Bible says we have a better covenant established upon better promises. Now, it doesn't say a different covenant. It says a better covenant. What that means is, and we'll see this in Galatians chapter 3, 
that the blessings of Abraham, all these blessings belong to us, but not because we've been obedient to keeping every little commandment of God in the Old Testament, but because we've made Jesus the Lord of our lives. Now, we see from these scriptures, we'll finish reading them in just a second, but we see from these scriptures what God's will is. And remember what he told the disciples to pray? Before he was born again, before he came back and established the church, he said, pray to the Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what's God's will on the earth? This stuff we're reading. This is Moses saying by the Spirit of God, this is the way God wants it in the earth. This is the way God wants it in your life. These are the things you have opportunity to bind if you're not if your life and your circumstance isn't living up to what the Bible says God wants. These are things that God has loosed that you have the opportunity to loose, meaning agree with God and His purpose to create and to enable these things to become a reality in your life. The Lord shall establish uh, well where, where was I? I think I finished with verse 7. Verse 8. The Lord shall command the blessing on thee in thy storehouses. Plural. And in all that thou settest thine hand unto. He shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Now remember Jesus said that the church would have authority to bind and loose. Now if the will of God is set, and it is. Meaning God's will never changes, and it never does. Why did Jesus give the authority to the church to bind and loose what's already been bound and loosed in heaven? Why did he give the church the authority to bind on earth what's been bound in heaven? And to loose on the earth what's been loosed in heaven? Why didn't he just say, and upon the church the will of God shall come to pass? Because God doesn't have authority on the earth. He created man to have authority on the earth. So whether or not the will of God comes to pass in your life or in mine is up to you in your life and me in my life. It's not God's choice. God's made his choice by saying this is the way I want it and this is the way I set it up in heaven. Now you can have it the same way on the earth if you want to. And here's the authority to make it so. You can bind what's been bound in heaven. What's been bound in heaven is sickness and disease and poverty and the enemy in every form. And you can have loose on the earth what's been loosed in heaven. What's been loosed in heaven? Abundance, health, peace, blessing of every type. But it has to be your choice. That's why Jesus gave you the authority as a member of the body of Christ. The Lord shall uh, establish thee a holy people, verse 9. Unto himself as he has sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways. And all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of thee. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods. God doesn't seem to have a problem with you having more than you need. He doesn't seem to have a problem with abundance. In fact, it must be the will of God for you to have an abundance. By the way, God's the one that named goods, goods. He didn't name them bads. If it was left up to the church, I think they might name them bads. The Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods, in the fruit of your body, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground, in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers to give thee. The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven, to give rain unto the land in his season, and to bless all the work of thine hand. And thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail, and thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath, if thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do. Now turn with me over to chapter 30. Moses is continuing to talk to them about obeying God's word and the consequences thereof. Let's start in verse 8. And thou shalt return, and he's talking about if you get away from God, but turn away from him, uh, but turn back to him, and, and so forth. So that's the context he's talking about. And thou shalt return and obey the voice of the Lord, and do all of his commandments which I command thee this day. 
And the Lord thy God will make thee plenteous in every work of thine hand, in the fruit of your body, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your land. Notice he says it's not over if you've missed it. You can come back and walk in the blessings of God anyway. All you have to do is return to obedience. The Lord God will make thee plenteous in every work of thine hand, in the fruit of your body, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good, as he rejoiced over thy fathers. If thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, and if thou shalt turn unto the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul. Now this sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, it covers every area of life. It's saying that God wants it to be such that you have no problem with the enemy whatsoever. Now, he says this. He makes these promises. He inspires Moses to declare these things and to to set out clearly and plainly the will of God for every man through obedience to his word in the presence of, of the enemy in the place where the devil lives here on the earth. But the real question is, how do we exercise the authority that he's given to us as members of his family or as members of the church? How do we exercise this power, this delegated authority, so that we can walk in the will of God in our lives? Well, he told them even in the Old Testament. Let's keep reading in verse 11. For this commandment which I command thee this day, the one they're supposed to keep, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that thou should say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it? But the word of God is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. Notice what he says. He says the key, the means, the vehicle, the way to get the will of God to work in your life, to realize God's will in all these areas in every area of your life is to get the word of God first in your mouth and then it gets into your heart. In other words, the way that he says to do the word is to speak the word. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, what if we're saying it just out of our head? Keep saying it out of your head and it'll start getting down into your heart. That's the way God designed it. And that's what Moses is telling him. But the word of God is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. It's interesting to me that so much of the church thinks that we're going to have authority when we get to heaven. What are we going to do with it there? There's no enemy. There's no adversary. There's no sickness. There's no disease. There's no lack. There's nothing to use your authority on in heaven. God's got that place squared away. There's no devil to deal with. Now, the place we need authority is where our enemy is. That's here. How do we exercise the authority to bind what's been bound in heaven and to loose what's been loosed in heaven, to loose the will of God in our lives? Let's say it that way. How do we bind the work of the devil to hinder the will of God from being loosed in our lives? Moses said it was to say the word, to speak the word. The word is nigh thee even in thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. Notice verse 15. See, I have set before thee this day life and good and death and evil. In that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that thou mayest live and multiply. And the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whether thou goest to possess it. In other words, he's saying whether you get life and good, blessings, or death and evil, the curses, has everything to do with your obedience to the word. And he identifies and defines that obedience to the word as saying what God said. You want to exercise authority over the devil? Speak the word. You need finances to increase in your life? Speak the word. Now, one of the things you may have noticed... Or you may recall, uh, may recognize it now that I say it, is that in Deuteronomy chapter 28, there's not one word made, not one mention made of healing. 
But if you read the rest of the 28th chapter, you'll find out that every sickness and every disease is a part of the curse. Well, why does God not mention as a part of his will in the first 13 or 14 verses of Deuteronomy 28 the healing power of God? Because God's will is not for you to get sick and then get well. God's will is for you to live in health. God's default position, as far as his will is concerned, is for us not to be touched, affected in any way whatsoever by sickness and disease ever. God's will is health, not just healing. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I need healing. Well, okay, you access that the same way you access all the rest of the will of God identified in these scriptures, and that is by speaking the word of God concerning healing. But notice that it tells us the means and the method whereby you bind and loose. So many times people are saying, Satan, I take authority over you and I bind you in Jesus' name. Well, that's fine, but then what? If we had authority to stop the devil from working on the earth... Why don't we all just say one big prayer and make him go away once and for all? It doesn't work that way, though, does it? Well, what do we do? Take authority over the devil? Tell him that you're taking authority over him? That's fine. No problem with that. But from that point forward, it's not a matter of just telling the devil that I'm taking authority over you. You've got to use God's means and method to bring about his will, to loose his will in your life, which is to speak his word. And Jesus called, those the, called that the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom. Now I want you to look with me to one last scripture. Remember I mentioned in, Deut- in uh, earlier in the service that Genesis chapter 22 is a huge, hugely important event because that's where Abraham offered Isaac as his son, uh, his only son. Oh, you got to be kidding. I got the wrong reference. I don't care about Isaac and Esau. Where is that? Anybody got it? Genesis 22. Well, I said that. Oh, silly me. I went to Genesis 27. I know what I wanted to do. Just didn't do it. Notice what God said to to, uh, Abraham. Abraham comes to the place where he raises the knife to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Now remember, Abraham's been walking with God for 40-something years at this point. He started when he was 75, and now Isaac Isaac was born when he was 100, so that's 25 years. So Isaac's probably about 17, so that would be 42 years. Is my math right? He's been walking with God for about 42 years. And in those 42 years, he's proven God faithful to the point where now he's willing to do anything God tells him to do. And he believes that there's nothing impossible with God. God can raise Isaac from the dead if that's what's necessary. And it would be necessary if he offers him as a sacrifice because God's already told him that through Isaac, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So notice, when the angel stops him, God says in verse 16, God says, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and not withheld thy son, thine only son, That in blessing I will bless thee. That was what he had already told him. And in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven. And the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now the last phrase is the only thing that God says that's new for him. But notice what he says. He says and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Remember what Jesus said about the church. In uh, Matthew 16. He said, Peter, God himself has shown you that I'm the Messiah. And upon this knowledge, I shall build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Galatians chapter 3 tells us that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. 
that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. One of the promises of the Spirit, one of the aspects or benefits or results of the promise of the Spirit, the new birth for us is that we will possess the gate of our enemies. That's why Jesus said, and I give you the keys of the kingdom. Here's how to possess the gate of your enemies. Now, in the Old Testament, the gate of your enemies was spoken of in several places. It very simply represents that your enemy is under the domination of a conquering power. You, in our case, Jesus, who conferred that authority upon us. It means you're the one that possesses the way in and the way out of all of your enemy's defenses, of all of your enemy's power and abilities, military and otherwise. A part of the church authority is that we possess Satan's gates. That's why the Bible talks about Jesus uh, obtaining the keys of hell and death. There is no way that the devil can enforce successfully, effectively, can enforce any result of spiritual death upon somebody that knows who they are in Christ Jesus and uses the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I've tried it and it doesn't work. Yeah, it works. You may not have found it to work yet, but it always works. Well, what are we supposed to do? Keep sticking with it. Keep saying it until you believe it. Then when you say it from your heart, the devil knows the difference. And the Bible is true. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He has to go, folks. He has to go from your finances. He has to go from your flesh. He has to pack up his sickness and disease and go. It doesn't matter if it takes a day or a week or a month or a decade. The word of God always works. How do we know? Because Jesus spoiled principalities and powers and made an open show of them. One uh, preacher friend of mine, minister friend of mine, says that verse this way. He defeated the devil. Jesus defeated the devil and paraded him through downtown eternity. I like that. Somehow that just gives me a good picture. But that's exactly what he did. Everybody in the spirit realm knows Satan is a defeated foe. We need to know that too. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to read and study your word. We thank you for the authority that we have in the name of Jesus. We exercise that authority, Father, by saying what you said in your word. We say that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we're healed. We say that we are blessed on every hand, everything we put our hand to prospers, that you make us plenteous in goods, in the fruit of our body, in the fruit of our land, in the works of our hands, in every way. We thank you, Father, for abundance. We thank you for the peace of God, Father. We thank you for victory over the devil in every area and every aspect of life. We thank you, Father, that we are part of your church, born again, new creatures in Christ Jesus. And therefore, heirs of all the blessings of salvation. Thank you, Father, for the authority that we have in the precious and holy name of Jesus. If you can agree with that, say amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. You are dismissed. <laughs>